gold standard. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone to the Dr. Hedberg Show. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I'm really excited today to have Chris Kresser on the show. Been following his work for a long time. And Chris is the CEO of the Kresser Institute. He is a licensed acupuncturist, and he's also the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine. And chriscresser.com, most of you who, who do any kind of reading on the internet have most assuredly come across Chris's website for some excellent health information there. And he recently uh, published a book called uh, the, the Paleo Cure, and this was a New York Times bestselling uh, book. And Chris was also named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, great. So why don't we, we jump in and just talk a little bit about conventional healthcare, because obviously there are some, some big issues there with conventional medicine. And so what are the, the areas that you see in conventional medicine that, that really need uh, to really be changed and, uh, and really worked on mm-hmm. to, to get people in this country, you know, much healthier. Yeah. I think the biggest issue with our current system is that it's not set up to address chronic disease. It was uh, the conventional medical system really came out of uh, a time and a place where acute challenges were the biggest issues that we face. So if you look at the turn of the 20th century, top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases, typhoid, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. And uh, I, you know, conventional medicine today is, is remarkably effective for those kinds of problems. If, if you, I always say, if I get hit by a bus, I definitely want to be taken to the hospital. You know, we have pretty amazing medical technologies and interventions that allow us to even reattach severed limbs. You know, we're starting to maybe be able to restore sight to the blind. And, um, you know, if I get an infection, I'm grateful that uh, I can, if necessary, take antibiotics that might save my life. So there have been some incredible developments in conventional medicine that have extended our lifespan and, and, you know, basically eliminated certain causes of death that were the scourge of humanity for many, many years. Unfortunately, that's not the biggest problem today. Today, we are suffering from an epidemic of chronic disease. In fact, seven of 10 deaths are caused by chronic diseases, uh, things like cardiovascular disease and lung disease and cancer, and now Alzheimer's and dementia at a growing rate. And our conventional medical system was really never set up to deal with those conditions because they weren't as big of an issue uh, at the time when the medical system developed. So now we have this huge burden of chronic disease and uh, the conventional healthcare system really 
its main approach is to prescribe medication. And these medications, though they might be somewhat helpful in addressing the symptoms of these diseases, they, they almost never address the underlying causes of chronic disease. And that's why we see the rates of these conditions just continue to rise each year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had a major overhaul to our healthcare system, but it was just sort of a different way to pay for the same exactly. uh, model. So that aspect is is disturbing. You know, we can we can find a lot of different ways to pay for for healthcare and have a new system, but right. I don't really think that that's going to improve the the health of of Americans at large. So. That's such a great point, and I want to stop there for a second because it's one that a lot of people don't realize. It's it was so disappointing to see all of these debates about healthcare that really are just about rearranging the the deck furniture on the Titanic as it sinks beneath <laughs> the ocean. You know, that's really the right. the best way to think about it. And it it don't get me wrong; it is important to make sure that people have care. Uh, that they need like in, in those situations, like I mentioned, if you get injured or you, you have an acute uh, emergency care situation uh, and that requires treatment if someone's type 1 diabetic and, and needs insulin, we have to provide that kind of care. But we also have to recognize that that's not going to stop the rising tide of chronic disease. And it was disappointing in all of the discussion and debate on healthcare to not see that acknowledged and to not, um, you know, there's the, 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 the elephant was in the room and nobody was um, paying any attention to it on either side of the political aisle. And I think we really need to change the conversation about that, which is what one of the reasons I wrote mm-hmm. my, my last book on conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So like you said, so conventional medicine does really well with acute care, but chronic illness is really the big issue and it's obviously very expensive um lowers quality of life a lot of people don't have access or or answers to alternatives so why why do you think chronic illness has become such a big problem in our country uh that's you know, that's a long conversation. I'm happy to go in as much depth as you want to, but I'd always like to start with the short version, which is um, if you envision it like a mathematical formula, it would be um, genetic predisposition plus modern lifestyle equals modern disease, chronic disease. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have our, our human beings evolved in a completely different environment than we're living in now. And evolutionary biology tells us that all organisms are adapted to survive and thrive in a particular environment. And if you change that environment faster than the organism can adapt genetically, you get a mismatch between the genes and the biology of that organism and the environment. And that mismatch is the primary driver of chronic disease. So if we consider a a very simple example, you know, there are certain types of bacteria that have been discovered recently that live in near hydrothermal vents, you know, deep in the ocean or in, in volcanoes. And they have their whole metabolism and biology is set up for those environments. And if you were to take that bacteria and drop it into like a shallow tide pool, it would die almost immediately. And it's not so extreme with us, but it's the same idea. We evolved in an environment, you know, outdoor environment where we were physically active throughout most of the day. We didn't sit for long periods 
we lived in, 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 in sync with the natural rhythms of light and dark. We weren't exposed to a lot of artificial light. We ate uh, whole nutrient-dense foods, primarily meat and fish, uh, wild fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and some starchy tubers. We lived in close-knit tribal social groups. That was the, the norm for our more recent human ancestors and our distant hominid ancestors for more than two and a half million years. And it's only been in the last 10,000 years that we developed agriculture and started to settle down and really only the last 150 years that industrial, you know, industrialized civilization came about. And, and then only really in the last 40 to 50 years that we've seen massive changes in how we sleep. So for example, uh, today, fewer than or about a third of people get fewer than six hours of sleep, and that number was only two percent in, in just 1960. So, uh, the obesity epidemic is another example. It's 40 percent uh, of Americans are obese now, and that that number was I don't remember the exact statistic offhand, but far lower just even 30 or 40 years ago. So, mm-hmm. I think it's this growing mismatch between our modern environment and what our genes and our biology are really optimized for that is driving this epidemic. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And we're not very well prepared for it. It's come so fast and uh, so many issues, you know, come up with that regarding climate change and uh, water availability, the future of that. Uh, Just many, many things are going to going to tie in. I wish I could be really, really optimistic about the health of, of everyone, but uh, it's difficult. So let's get into functional medicine. Let's try and focus on some solutions here. And, and I think most people listening, there's definitely a lot of functional medicine practitioners listening, but also a lot of people who, some people who might not really know exactly what functional medicine is. So can you kind of give us an overview of that and how it could help mm-hmm. uh, the health of people? Yeah, I like to start with, uh, with an analogy just to keep it really simple. Um, if you imagine you have a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt and you go to see a conventional doctor, they'll probably prescribe an uh, NSAID like Advil or painkiller of some kind. And that will certainly help your foot to feel better. Mm-hmm. But Uh, it's not going to obviously solve the problem, which is the rock in your shoe. In functional medicine, we would, um, you know, ask you some questions and try to figure out why your foot is hurting. And then, you know, we would find that there's a rock in your shoe and and the treatment would be taking off your shoe and dumping out the rock. So I I like to use that analogy because it, it really emphasizes the the, the essence of functional medicine, which in my mind is treating the underlying causes of disease rather than just suppressing symptoms. And that can make it different even than some types of holistic or, or perhaps integrative medicine um, where you, know, you sometimes see still a focus on symptoms, but instead of using drugs, using supplements or herbs or things like that to address the symptoms, without really thinking about what are the core underlying processes that are driving the manifestation of these symptoms. And that's really what I think the, the um, power of functional medicine is about. And to be clear, this is not u- exclusive to functional medicine. Many traditional medical systems like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine have been oriented around this for many years, uh, uh, thousands of years in some cases. 
I think what's unique about functional medicine is that it combines that holistic view of the body and that root cause approach with modern laboratory and diagnostic testing. So you kind of get the best of both worlds there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the analogy of the, the rock and the shoe, the one that we were, were given in school was the check engine light and you can go and get your car actually fixed and have a, a mechanic look under the hood and figure it out. Or you could just remove the check engine light bulb. Yeah. Or tape <laughs> over, tape, put a put some tape over yeah. it, duct tape over it, right? Right, yeah. yeah just a good one too. I like that. Yeah, so um, I'm glad you're here because I've been having uh, you know some some difficult conversations over the last few years. Something I've been thinking a lot about is some of the issues with with functional medicine, and I'm really interested to get your perspective on this because it's something that I think we need to, to, to reconcile. And before I ask the, the question, I want to preface it by saying that I'm, I'm mainly interested in, in being better at what we do. And so one of, one of the issues that I see with, with functional medicine that needs to be reconciled is the fact that if you take uh, one patient, say, with with Hashimoto's or any, any, any kind of chronic illness, and they go to, let's just say they went to 10 different highly seasoned uh, functional medicine practitioners, you're, you're really not going to get, there's going to be some overlap and some similarity, but there's definitely going to be a lot of differences there. And it could, yeah. it could be all the way down to how many grams of, of fish oil they use. You know, one might use 1.5 grams or three grams or six grams. And then the other might use, um, you know, a certain dose of vitamin D and then the next might use, uh, uh, fairly similar diets, but there could be some, some variation there. And so this is something that I've been, I've been struggling with the last few years and just trying to figure out how we, we can do better and, and somehow figure out more, more standardization across the board. So is this something that you, you think about, or do you think that's too reductionist? Cause it's hard to, mm-hmm. to evaluate the whole treatment plan when there's so many things that, that you're doing at once. So what do you think about that? Yeah, question? absolutely. Yeah. I think there are a lot of challenges with functional medicine. Um, and that doesn't, necessarily alarm or concern me because medic medicine is complex <laughs> it's not an easy nut to crack so to speak if it was we would have figured it out by now and um you know some of the strengths of functional medicine and the things that make it uh, uh that give it advantages compared to conventional medicine can actually also be disadvantages when you are talking about scaling it to the level that it needs to scale to in order to be accessible to you know, 300 plus million people in the United States and also worldwide. Um, so there's a, there's a tension there because, you know, one example would be the principle of, of treating the patient and not the disease. And you were alluding to this in your question where um, one of the key differences between conventional and functional medicine is in functional medicine, we really seek to individualize treatment uh, based on the patient's unique factors. They're their genes, their gene expression, their uh, uh, current health status, their their lifestyle, their goals. Um, and if you consider, for example, 
uh, 10 patients with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or, or Crohn's disease, in the conventional model, they, they would all be treated uh, similarly because the focus is on the disease that they have, not who they are. Whereas in functional medicine, we might recognize that in a few of those cases, the primary driver is autoimmunity and perhaps um, diet that is triggering that autoimmune disease or the presence of certain environmental toxins that are uh, dysregulating the immune system. And we might take specific steps to address those underlying causes in order to resolve the signs and symptoms of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis in those patients. However, there might be a, a few other patients you know, in that group for whom undetected parasite infections uh, or disrupted gut microbiome is the primary driver. And so they might get a slightly different treatment than the ones who, uh, for whom diet or toxins were the primary drivers. So that's, that's really what makes functional medicine unique and powerful. But the problem with that, as you pointed out, is it's, it can lead to uh, different clinicians doing different things. It's very hard to study functional medicine in a research context for that reason, um, because you know the double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials that are um, considered to be the gold standard of medical research are predicated on the idea of just changing one factor, typically, mm -hmm. either usually adding a you know having a drug versus a placebo. And as you can imagine, it's impossible to do that in functional medicine because we are not just changing one factor and we are really individualizing the treatment. So um, having said all that, I do think that we, there are um, ways to design research studies that can be effective. Uh, Mark Hyman at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine is working on this now. One of the things that they're doing is they're comparing functional medicine intervention to standard care. So they're not trying to just compare single agents like one drug. They're saying, let's have this group of patients go to a uh, you know, conventional practitioner and get the standard care for this condition. So for diabetes, they might get metformin or other medications. And then let's have this other group of patients go and see a functional medicine practitioner who's, you know, doing the, the uh, functional medicine way of individualizing treatment. And then let's compare the results at, at the end of that period. And that I think is a better way to go because it really compares real world scenarios, someone going to a conventional doctor or someone going to a functional practitioner who has that perspective. It doesn't resolve the issue that you pointed out, which is a real issue. Uh, and that is, comparing outcomes of someone who goes to two different functional medicine practitioners who are using different functional medicine methods. And, you know, I think that that will come with time. It's just as, as more people are using this type of approach, we'll start to develop some standards of care. You know, we'll start to do more research on certain interventions and uh, that will help provide an evidence base where we can say, hey, this, you know, this treatment that's commonly used in functional medicine is actually quite effective. We have research that supports that now. And this other treatment that is, you know, by some practitioners isn't really effective. And so let's, let's start to move towards these more evidence-based approaches rather than just doing whatever we feel like doing or whatever our biases lead us to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you'll, you'll see that a lot in, in the functional medicine world. Um, 
you know, the, the labs that are used can be very different. Yeah. And uh, practitioners will say, well, you know, I just, I just get great results with this or, you know, I just, I just feel more comfortable using this particular test over that. Right. And it's the same thing with, with supplementation and, and, and certain diets and things like that. So it's, like I said, it's something I, I struggle with cause I want us to, 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 to be better than that. But I think you're right. It's just, it's going to take time for this to really come around. And, you know, if someone sees you or, or they see me, like you said, it's hard to, to pinpoint the things that are the most effective compared to, is it everything happening all at once? So like, let's say I get a patient and I get them uh, meditating and, uh, you know, walking out in nature and yeah. uh, improving their diet, taking a few supplements, you know, improving their sleep, just all these different things. You, we, we can never really break it down to one thing. What's, what's the most effective yeah, and that's really absolutely. hard to study, like you said. I mean, how do you study that with when there's so many interventions at the same time? Yeah, it's it's very challenging, and and um, I mean, I think there are a couple of different ways to approach that. One is, or to interpret that or look at it. One is, well, you know, from the perspective of reducing the global burden of disease and extending lifespan, it doesn't matter. You know, as long as they're getting the result and the, the disease rates are dropping and people's well-being and quality of life is going up and their lifespan is extending, it doesn't matter. On the other hand, it does matter because we want to find out which of those treatments are most effective so that we can, effectively, we can scale them up and make them available to a wider number of people and we can give people a sense of where they should be investing their time and energy and um, rather than uh, just kind of using a fire hose approach. Um, mm -hmm. But I, it's challenging because as I'm sure you've experienced, you know, for one patient, it's going to be the walking in nature that really makes the huge difference. Mm -hmm. And yet for another patient, it's not that it's, mm -hmm. it's actually treating their SIBO that has the life changing effect. And it's this is where I think it will always be a, a bit of a, a challenge and an opportunity in that, you know, we are individuals. We share a lot in common, uh, very common genetics, you know, where, where there's less genetic variation between any two humans on the planet than there, there is between chimpanzees. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we have some basic characteristics of physiology, anatomy, you know, everything else that we share in common, but we also have some very important differences and different lifestyles, goals, uh, and all of that. And those affect what, what will uh, play the biggest role for, for each person. And this is why I kind of shake my head when I see like, I, you know, articles in the newspaper about how AI is going to replace all doctors in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, good luck with that. I think AI is going to make a big impact on medicine and I actually look forward to it. I think it's going to enhance my practice a lot, but I don't see AI um, replacing the, uh, you know, this, the type of work that we're talking about anytime soon. I think it could potentially replace or at least have a huge impact on a doctor that is just diagnosing commonly, diag you know, commonly seen diseases and prescribing drugs based on those. Cause it's, I think it's relatively easy to, you know, create an algorithm for that. But 
with the level of complexity and personalization that we're talking about here, uh, not going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. It's with, with all the, the flaws in functional medicine, it's still, I think, the best thing we have yeah. right now going forward. So now you, had, you brought up SIBO. So I did want to ask you uh, just you know, a question about the GI and, and what you've been, been looking into recently. So the gut, you know, it's, I don't know if I would say it's en vogue right now, but it's really at the, at the forefront of, of functional medicine and, and a lot of what's out there and alternative medicine and even, even conventional medicine. So is there anything that you've been, been reading or, or focusing on recently regarding the gut that, that you think would be of interest to people? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I imagine you have this experience too, Nick, but over, you know, more than a decade of doing this, I, I, I have, uh, seen a lot of patients for whom the typical functional medicine treatments for, for SIBO and other gut issues aren't effective. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I should mention that most of the patients I see are not, um, typical patients. They're very complex cases. Um, you know, often my, my patient is the, is the one who's seen 10 different doctors, you know, over 10 years and has not been able to find an answer and they make their way to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, we're, we're maybe not talking about the average patient off the street, but nevertheless, the, these are folks who have done all of the herbal treatments, they've done the pharmaceutical treatments, and they've done the special diets, and they're not getting the results. And, you know, in the, in the SIBO world, for example, a lot of the more prominent um, people who treat it have just come to see it as a relapsing remitting condition and, you know, offer the idea that you're just going to have to take antimicrobial drugs or herbs for the rest of your life, you know, as the SIBO relapses. I'm, there's something in me that just doesn't accept that as, a, as an outcome. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I started to think more about, you know, what's going on in those situations. And um, I think there, again, once again, you know, probably not just one answer. I think it depends on the person. In some cases, there may be another issue present that is actually more underlying than the SIBO. And the SIBO in that case is a symptom of that deeper problem. So perhaps it's a chronic infection, which is something I know that you talk a lot about, Nick. You mm-hmm. know, maybe it's a tick-borne disease that is having a, a kind of paralyzing effect on the gut uh, and keeping it from uh, either re- recovering health or, or in the first place or keeping it, you know, uh, uh, re- relapsing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a heavy metal like mercury or lead that's present that's having a similar effect or maybe it's nervous system dysfunction and this is what i've been thinking a lot about recently and and looking into i mean the gut is really just one big bundle of nerves Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll refer to it as the second brain the enteric nervous system and i think in many cases when you see these recurring gi conditions the nervous system and a focus on the nervous system is the missing element. And mm-hmm. uh, we know now a lot about neuroplasticity. There's been some phenomenal discoveries over the past 20 to 30 years in the field of neuroscience that, that shows us that um, changes in uh, behavior, thought, emotion, 
exposure to ta- to trauma, like not just emotional or psychological trauma, but microbial traumas like infections or chemical traumas like toxins or physical traumas like uh, car accident or some you know some kind of injury uh, that leads to a, a brain injury can cause lasting changes in the nervous system. They can change the structure and the function of, of the brain and the nervous system. And I think in some cases, let's say um, somebody goes traveling and they get a parasite infection and that infection is treated successfully. So the parasite is gone, but the experience of that created a pattern in the nervous system and the gut, the enteric nervous system that extends beyond the elimination of the original trigger. And essentially that person's gut develops a pattern of, of malfunction that is lasting and mm-hmm. um, treating with, you know, parasites and drugs and herbs and stuff like that might provide temporary relief. But if that nervous system pattern is not addressed, then that person will not, you know, perhaps not fully recover. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought, brought this up because one of the things I would say the most interesting research, at least for me that I read is psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, they, they hear that word and they need to understand that the immunology, you know, about 75% of the immune system is the gut. So it's really mm-hmm. psychoneuroimmunogastroenterology. I mean, that's right. really a, a better term for it. And I try to explain to patients, it's this connection with your brain and your nervous system and your gut and your immune system and all these things that have happened to you as, as a kid, as an adult. Um, can really change that whole system and dynamic. And those uh, the regular listeners of my podcast know that I've been covering the the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, a lot over the last three or four months because this is, I think, it's it's possibly the most overlooked aspect in in chronic illness in adults, at least in in my practice and who I'm seeing and. And I've just found myself, I refer out to, to a psychotherapist now probably more than any, any other, other professional. And we just get much, much better results when we really focus on those childhood traumas, adult traumas, and, and ongoing stress. So have you looked into that area much recently? Absolutely. Um, it's something I've been aware of for some time. And I think psychotherapy is a fantastic option in some cases in other cases uh i think some some newer methods of of working with the nervous system and and exploring that i i kind of i might refer to it as applied neuroplasticity um mm-hmm. where where you're you're seeing through the lens of uh that you're seeing the problem through the lens of like a limbic system injury or an actual change to the brain that's below the level of conscious thought you know, so it's mm-hmm. if we think about the example I used earlier of the parasite infection in that situation, there was an initial trigger and the nervous system mounted what was an appropriate response in at that time. You know, so it's a fight or flight response, which the body uses um, to address immediate threats um, to our health and, sur- and survival. But sometimes I think that 
fight or flight response can get stuck and then persist inappropriately even after that trigger is is gone and that's happening at a subconscious level that's not someone who's just necessarily even acting consciously in ways that are harmful to themselves or if they're not aware of it on the conscious level and so i think sometimes talk psychotherapy may not be effective in those cases and you know other types of therapy somatic therapies like uh, peter levine's work somatic experiencing uh, feldenkrais which works directly with the nervous system or some of uh, uh, some diy uh, systems like the dynamic neural retraining system dnrs annie hopper's work that is really specifically oriented around reprogramming the the limbic system and the nervous system can be even more effective in some cases for, for these types of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up somatic experiencing. That is something that I refer out for quite a bit. Um, and Pierre Levine, if anyone is interested, his book, Waking the Tiger, is, is an excellent read on trauma. And also I like EMDR, which is eye yeah. movement, mm-hmm. desensitization and reprocessing. That's very effective. And uh, those other therapies, you know, very effective as well. And there's some great uh, breathing techniques out there too in yoga, um, yoga, yoga nidra, yep. and things like that uh, can be very helpful as well with with the limbic and and the autonomic nervous system. So I hope that uh, you know people listening will we'll always take these recommendations to heart. Some people will get upset, you know, when you start to recommend these kinds of things, because they think that you're telling them that it's all in their head and you just, you have to educate them that there really is no separation between, between the brain and, and psychology and, and the rest of the body and these traumas. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a very important distinction to make. What we're talking about is not psychosomatic, um, mm-hmm. that, that was a, a perspective or a term or, that was used to diminish the reality of uh, people suffering by doctors who, uh, I think even before that psychosomatic term was used, the term that was used was hysteria. And it was a very patriarchal view. It was often a term applied to women mm-hmm. uh, who tend to suffer uh, more frequently with these kinds of syndromes and uh, were not you know, the, the idea there is that um, people are essentially imagining their symptoms through in a, in a form of hypochondria or they are creating the symptoms by, you know, their, through their anxiety and worry. And that's not at all what we're talking about here. What we're mm-hmm. talking about here is a, a, a nervous system, limbic system dysfunction that is uh, in, in the brain and the nervous system. And it then affects the function of everything else in the body. So, uh, you know, to your point, Nick, you can either say that it is all in your, every, every condition that we suffer from is all in our head, so to speak, mm-hmm. it, right. because there is nothing in the body that happens that's not mediated by the brain, and the mm-hmm. brain is in our head. <laughs> so, in, in, that, right, in, that, right. in that sense, everything is all in our head. Uh, <laughs> Because in in neuroscience, there's a saying, no brain, no pain. So Mm -hmm. what this means is that neuroscientists know that if you interrupt the impulse from the area 
there's no such thing as an objective experience of pain. If you cut your arm, your, your hand, if mm -hmm. neuroscientists are able to sever the connection or interrupt the connection between your brain and, and, and your hand, you know, they interrupt that nerve impulse, you will not experience any pain. Um, mm -hmm. And what this implies is that the, the brain is really running the show. And this shows up in conditions like um, CRPS or chronic regional pain syndrome. So this is a condition mm -hmm. where somebody becomes, usually it starts with an injury. So let's say somebody sprains their ankle or, or their knee. Uh, and I mentioned before, there's an acute response to that injury that's appropriate um, for helping the body to heal. You know, the inflammatory, there's swelling of the knee, there's redness, and that's all a sign that the body's doing what it should be doing to help that injury heal. In CRPS, what happens is that the brain gets confused. And even when the there's no ongoing structural damage, the brain continues to respond as if an acute injury is present. So that person will, will continue to experience swelling and pain and all the other things that it are that characterize an acute injury months or even years after that initial injury occurred. And it's well understood, even in very conventional settings, that this is not a, this is a problem in the brain and how the mm -hmm. brain is responding to that, um, you know, to that experience. And it's not, you know, there are psychological factors, of course, that affect the brain, just like psychological factors affect every other part of the body but it's not seen as a, as a psychosomatic condition. It's seen as a nervous system or brain dysfunction. And this is, this is what we're talking about when, when I'm talking about SIBO or other conditions that are influenced or, or even primarily driven by um, this constellation of, of factors in the brain. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I'm glad you, so you brought up women. Most of the patients I see are, are women and and when you delve into the, the research, you can see some of the clear reasons why. And one of the things that, that's really interesting is how women are, are affected very differently when there's uh, relationship stress, um, if there's any loneliness. And one of the interesting things that I've, I've read in, in the research is actually just ha lacking a meaningful purpose in life. Uh, yeah. increases inflammatory cytokines and, and disrupts hormones, um, being lonely. And, and we're seeing a lot of that in our, in our society today. And loneliness, it doesn't just necessarily mean being alone. It can also just kind of having a lack of sense of community. And with everyone, at least in America, you know, working so hard, long hours and things like that, People are, I think, a lot more isolated today than they were in the past. Like you mentioned earlier, we were in these tribes of about 100 people. We had all that support and, and love and, and things to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a part of it. What do you, do you see yeah. that as a, as a factor? I see it as a huge factor. And um, there's some really interesting research you may be aware of that found that one study found that um, social isolation was a greater predictor of early death than tr traditional risk factors like obesity, you know, high body mass index, bl high blood pressure, and even smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. So put another way, if, if you're socially isolated, 
that you, you actually have a, a higher risk of early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And when I explain, you know, when I say that to most people, they're, they're absolutely shocked mm -hmm. and blown away because I think most people, especially clinicians would, would never expect a, 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 I'm doing air quotes here, soft social factor like mm -hmm. isolation or loneliness to have as big of an impact on our lifespan than something like smoking cigarettes. So I believe it's crucial and I, I think it is one of those areas of mismatch that I mentioned earlier where, you know, we are set up to be in a, in a close knit social group and humans for most of our evolutionary history um, didn't really know more than 150 people. But for those 150 people that we did know, we had close connections with and, you know, we interacted with on a daily basis and we felt like we were part of a tribe, a part of a group. Um, and we, we, we felt held by that. And today, mm -hmm. most of us live in isolated nuclear family arrangements, you know, where we might have our immediate family, but we don't have much support beyond that. And, you mm -hmm. know, we're connected to many more than 150 people through social media. I mean, some people have tens of thousands of friends and connections on social media, but I think the research has been pretty clear that those uh, so-called connections do not have the same impact on us that uh, real, you know, in live in-person human connection does. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up social media because that ties into this. And at least the papers that I've read so far, it's 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 pretty clear that this has a, a negative impact on on mental health, depression, anxiety, just just not feeling feeling well after being on social media. And so I made a, a big decision in the beginning of 2018. I just felt like morally and ethically as a healthcare practitioner, I had to delete all of my social media accounts and, uh, and also do that personally. It's definitely been very, very beneficial doing that. And uh, it's just not a, a real connection, like you said, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a digital connection and and it's just not the same so yeah i think uh there's so many <laughs> we could go down a real rabbit hole there but there's so many things reasons for that and so many uh uh perils and pitfalls there i mean what i, I we've been talking about this theme of mismatch so i want to just go into that a little bit here about why technology and smartphone addiction and technology addiction is so harmful and why none of us are, um, can, you know, uh, are, are immune to it. Um, there's, there's, you know, human beings have a, uh, we're, we're sort of hardwired to be technology addicts. And, and the reason for that is that uh, we're prone to distraction. And in a natural environment, that, dis that inherent distractibility was a survival advantage. So if you imagine a, a group of humans uh, early hominid ancestors who were like uh, sitting around a fire. Maybe they were, you know, uh, doing something, um, work, you know, creating some arrowheads or something like that. And there was a, a lion or another predator stalking them. The, mm -hmm. the, the human that was able to maintain, you know, really great focus and keep doing what he was doing and not notice the lion that was stalking him didn't mm -hmm. didn't survive to pass right. on his genes. <laughs> the the one that was uh, 
always scanning the environment and checking for, you know, and, 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 and in essence, very distractible, was, was easily distracted by something moving in his peripheral vision or her peripheral vision, she survived and passed on her genes to us. And so that inherent distractibility um, was a real survival advantage in a natural environment. But today it makes us um, just incredibly prone to becoming addicted to these technologies, which are designed intentionally to exploit our basic human vulnerabilities. And that's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, these technology companies hire neuroscientists that are otherwise known as brain hackers. And there's a lot of research that goes into how to optimize games and apps and, and, and the devices themselves to maximize our attention because the whole business model for these technologies is, is, is selling our attention for profit. Mm -hmm. the, more, the more attention we pay, the more these companies make by selling advertising on that attention. So uh, I like to tell people, you, you are not the customer of these companies. You are their product. That's mm -hmm. why they're willing to give you these services for free <laughs> because they right. are then selling your attention for a profit. So I think that's important for people to understand because it takes it out of the realm of personal failure. Like there, there's something wrong with me because I'm, you know, I, I'm prone to overuse these devices or I, I'm, I'm addicted and, and there's a lot of shame and guilt and blame that, that gets mixed up in that. But the reality is if you're a human being, you're prone to this and you know, there's nobody that can escape it. And that's why it's so important to, um, to create limits and to, to intentionally um, structure your life and your use of these devices in a way that um, recognizes the, the, the potential for harm and the potential for addiction for everybody. And that, you know, gives you, gives yourself a chance basically um, mm -hmm. to, to not be overrun by these devices. I think the other thing that is so harmful about social media in particular uh, is encapsulated in the Mark, famous Mark Twain quote, quote which is uh, comparison is the death of joy. Mm -hmm. So you, you, yeah. know, you don't have to spend very much time on Instagram or any of these social media platforms to feel like you're a loser and everybody right. else is, has a better life than you. And why? Because people are posting the best moments of their lives on these mm -hmm. platforms. And if you just scan through your feed, uh, you're going to see an artificial representation of people's life, not what's actually happening, but what they want you to see. And that, I think, is really harmful because it leads to a, a very narrow um, a presentation of human experience and what is acceptable and what is real and normal. And uh, that is, I think what is leads to the depression and anxiety um, in many ways that's associated with excess social media use. Yeah. I just want to add, add a few things on that. I'm glad you brought up some of those things you mentioned on social media and the, and the, that, uh, that issue you were just talking about of comparison, it seems, it actually seems to affect, uh, women and, and young girls mm -hmm. the most because teen uh, suicide in girls is, uh, is skyrocketing. And the uh, social psychologists that I've read explain that women or, or young girls, when they post on social media, they're actually doing it for different reasons than the boys. They're mm -hmm. actually doing it because they're, they're awaiting the feedback from other people. And if the feedback isn't good or if they don't get enough thumbs ups, um, it, it, it can be pretty devastating to them 
yes. psychologically, whereas the boys, they're not as concerned about how much positive feedback they're getting. And at least these psychologists that I've read are saying that that's one of the reasons why the, the suicide and the anxiety and the depression is, is much higher in the girls than the boys. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And, and one other thing that, that people should really know is that these tech companies, they're actually bringing in uh, engineers from Las Vegas casinos who are experts in addiction and they're bringing them in because like you said, they want everything crafted perfectly to addict you to the platform and keep you on there. There's no, it's no secret or, or um, unknown why the, on, on the Facebook page in the upper right hand corner, uh, the number of likes or messages you've gotten is in the color red and it's also no no surprise why things are set up the way they are the interface how things pop up on the page all of that is is perfectly crafted to to keep you on there and addict you so it's important that people know you know where these where these companies are going and and who they're bringing in and when you're when they're hiring gambling experts to, to craft their platform, it, it should be a real wake up call and how much people should, should be using these, uh, these platforms, if at all. Um, and like Absolutely. I said, there's, a, there's, there's a number of many, many reasons that we could get into beyond that as to why people should, should either just not use it or, or delete them. Yeah. It's, uh, I think there's another interesting and, and morally and ethically questionable phenomenon here, um, which is that most of many um, CEOs and leaders of these tech companies send their kids to Waldorf schools. Uh, why is that interesting? Waldorf schools explicitly limit the use of technology in the classroom and even at home. Mm -hmm. um, you, if you send your kid to a Waldorf school, which full, full disclosure, I do, we do, uh, you have right. to sign a contract that says you're not, even at home, you're not exposing your child to uh, screens and uh, up to, you know, uh, especially young children. Um, so so that's, that's problematic, right? That these, these, the leaders of these companies are making a huge profit on these technologies and are actively engaged in... Um, uh, getting people as addicted as possible, and yet they are sending their kids to schools that limit the use of these technologies. So mm. um, that doesn't sit well with me, and I, you know, right. I don't think it should sit well with anybody. Right? Yeah. I mean, there was an article I read a few years ago that Steve Jobs, who invented the iPad, yeah, he, he did not allow his kids to use an iPad. No. Yet. Yet these are in many, many public schools now uh, as devices that the kids are using. And, and so the inventor wouldn't even let his own kids use it. Absolutely. It's, uh, and Bill, Bill, Gate, Bill and Melinda Gates didn't let their kids uh, give, give their kids a phone until they were 14, I think. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a, uh, the editor of Wired, there's a long list of people who are in the technology world and they're uh, strictly limiting their kids' use of, of these devices. Uh, and yet those companies are, are not 
um, out there, you know, warning people about overuse of the devices. Like you don't, you know, if you go to buy a pack of cigarettes, um, you don't see a, uh, I mean, you do see a warning that says these, you know, cigarettes are known to cause cancer. Uh, if you buy an iPhone or an app or uh, Instagram, download the Instagram app or whatever, you don't see a warning there that, uh, it, it, you know, shows what the potential effects of that would be. And so uh, the good news is I think there is some movement, you know, even amongst some of the technology companies, Apple as in the latest operating system, at least took some steps to like improve the do not disturb mode settings and, um, you know, uh, so that people are not using their phones at night and, or leaving them in the bedroom and keeping them on, which is a huge problem in terms of interrupting sleep. Um, and, you know, hopefully with more awareness and research that continually comes out about this stuff um, and the, the effects that it can have, then we'll, we'll see um, mm-hmm. more, more of an improvement. Right, right. So why don't we, uh, why don't we close by just covering a little bit of your work in particular on the ancestral diet and lifestyle. I know you've written a lot about this and, and some books. So can you give us kind of an overview of, of the ancestral diet and, and your, your focus in that area? Sure. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we, we've been talking about mismatch all along, uh, as one of the primary drivers of chronic disease and, uh, diet is is certainly one of the most um, significant areas of mismatch. We, uh, for for the vast majority of our evolutionary history, humans ate uh, different types of meat and fish, fruit, wild fruits and vegetables, not the highly domesticated kinds that we have today. Um, nuts and seeds and some starchy tubers and plants, things like uh, sweet potatoes and roots and you know plantains and cassava and stuff like that. Um, and today the average American gets more, of uh, 40 to 45% of their, pro- of their calories, uh, from ultra processed foods, not just processed foods, but ultra processed foods, things like sugar, sweetened beverages and, um, grain-based desserts, cookies, cakes, things like, uh, pizza, things like that. And that's, that's the, I, I think, you know, when you, if you had to just, pick one factor that's really the, the, the primary cause of, of obesity, epidemic, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, that would be it. So the ancestral diet or approach is really just about getting back to that uh, basic template of foods that human beings have eaten for um, you know, 99% of our evolutionary history. We know that our body works well on those foods. We evolved eating those foods. Uh, those foods provide the nutrients, the 40 plus micronutrients that humans need to function properly. They are energy, um, they're, they're nutrient dense and naturally tend to be lower in calories than the highly processed and refined foods. They're rich in fermentable fibers, which we now know are crucial to feeding our gut microbiota. Um, and they don't have the artificial colorings and flavors and all kinds of other um, additives that have been associated in many studies with, um, with harm. So it, you know, people, I think have a lot of, there's a lot of baggage around the paleo diet and a lot of misunderstanding about it. 
you know, what we're really talking about here is just eating real nutrient dense food that human beings have eaten for, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the vast majority of our history. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. You're, you're right about the, the paleo diet and the ancestral diet and what you're talking about. There's, it, it, would you say it's sort of a modified, um, modified form of the paleo diet that is, has more options? Um, yeah, I would say that it's not about a dot, like it's not even a diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say it's just a way of eating. It's just a way of eating nutrient dense, real food. And, uh, you know, some, some examples, even in, in my first book, I said, uh, you know, some, uh, grain, like there's uh, growing evidence that grain and legume consumption that our Paleolithic ancestors probably did consume some grains and legumes. They may not have been the focus of the diet, but they, you know, were probably fallback foods in at, at times when, you know, other foods weren't available, or they may have been some primary components of the diets for certain cultures. And um, it's certainly true that uh, many patients in my practice do better when they eliminate grains and legumes from their diet, if they're dealing with digestive issues or autoimmunity or other problems like that. But that doesn't mean that the average healthy person uh, who doesn't have any of those issues is going to be made sick by eating quinoa and lentils. I mean, I I think that argument in Mm -hmm. the paleo community is pretty preposterous and there's, I've never been able to find any evidence to support the idea that, foods like quinoa and lentils, especially when they don't, you know, form the basis of the diet and don't replace other more nutrient dense foods are, are problematic if they're well tolerated. So that's, I I really diverge from, you know, paleo advocates in that way. I think dairy products are another example of where, um, you know, these were not consumed by our paleolithic ancestors. Dairy consumption only really started about 11, 12,000 years ago. Um, and, um, that because at that, you know, so there was probably a spontaneous genetic mutation that allowed, uh, lactase persistence, which is the, uh, you know, most of our ancestors didn't produce lactase, which is the enzyme required to digest milk after weaning, um, because mother's milk was the only source of milk. Uh, we weren't domesticating cattle and, and, and drinking their milk. And at some point, 11, 12,000 years ago, there was a genetic uh, spontaneous mutation that allowed humans to start being able to digest lactose after they've been weaned. And since uh, milk provided a source of calories and, and fluid and, and water in times of drought or sustenance, that mutation rapidly spread because there was a survival advantage. And now, you know, about a third of people around the world are able to digest lactose in adulthood. And when you, what's interesting to me is when you look at the research you consistently see that full fat dairy, not low fat or non-fat dairy, but full fat dairy is associated with a lower risk of obesity, lower risk of cardiovascular disease, and a lower risk of metabolic disease. So uh, it's also rich in nutrients like conjugated linolenic acid, uh, vitamin A and vitamin D, at least in the case of grass-fed pasture-raised animals. It's It's a most bioavailable source of, one of the most bioavailable sources of calcium. So if someone can tolerate dairy and they they're not lactose intolerant they're not um, intolerant or allergic to dairy proteins then consuming you know pasture raised dairy in the form of butter or ghee or um, 
cream or yogurt or kefir, which add the benefit of uh, beneficial bacteria. Um, there's not much reason not to do that in, in my mm -hmm. opinion. So that, you know, those are not paleo, but they, are, I, I would consider them to be part of an ancestral template of foods in, you know, in some cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, like during the winter, I drink a lot of goat kefir. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trader Joe's has, has a good one that I like. And then yeah. I just, I just don't really feel like I want to have it in the spring or, or the right. summer or even, you know, part of the fall. But for some reason, I just, I feel good when I consume it in the winter and I have no issues. And so that's like one example of, of something you were just talking about that, that can work for someone. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's another, I think, key uh, principle of an ancestral diet is seasonality. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a uh, hunter-gatherer tribe in East Africa was not eating um, foods that were grown in Mexico or, <laughs> or China. You know, Native Americans right. who lived in, in, on the Central Plains were not eating papayas. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they weren't even eating uh, in the winter. They weren't eating uh, summer fruits. So, because they, there was no infrastructure that could ship those, you know, transport those fruits, uh, foods for thousands of miles. Now, I mean, this doesn't mean for me, at least, you, you don't, I don't think you have to be a purist about this and never eat something that's out of season. You know, I will occasionally have a, a, a banana or, you know, a part of a banana and a smoothie in the winter time. Um, but I do think that it, there's a lot of logic, uh, behind, trying to mostly eat seasonally because seasonal foods are foods that can be grown locally. And what we know about local foods is that they're more nutrient dense than uh, foods that are grown and shipped across the country. So e even if those foods are organic, that's something a lot of people don't understand where um, if you uh, harvest a carrot uh, in California and then you put it in a dark truck and ship it for, you know, thousands of miles across to New York and then it sits on the in the supermarket uh, produce aisle for three, three more days before somebody buys it, that carrot is going to be far less nutrient dense than a carrot that's grown, you know, at a local farm and, then, and harvested a day before you buy it at the farmer's market. And mm -hmm. that's one of the most important but under-recognized factors in terms of nutrient density. The, exactly. So, well, this has been great. Um, what is the name of your, of your most recent book? Can you tell everyone? Sure. Uh, the most recent book is called Unconventional Medicine, and that's mm -hmm. available on Amazon. And then my first book was The, the Paleo Cure. Mm -hmm. Right. Which, as I mentioned, is not really a paleo book. <laughs> if I could go back in time and change the title of that book, I would. That was a, a disagreement I had with my publisher, frankly, and um, mm -hmm. it's one of my my few progress professional regrets at this point. I know, I know how that goes with, with using a publisher. You can't mm -hmm. always have things the way you want it. So, um, so the paleo cure and, uh, how would you like people to, to find you online? Uh, is there any thing you want to put out there for people to look at? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, my uh, website is chriscresser.com. And um, I also have a training program for functional medicine practitioners and also a training program for health coaches that uh, embraces the uh, you know, ancestral approach, the functional approach, and a collaborative practice model that um, teams up clinicians with health coaches. And you can learn more about those at cresserinstitute.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. And uh, I'm sure all our listeners uh, have gotten quite a bit of good information today. So for everyone listening, just go to drhedberg.com and you'll see the podcast today. And I'll put any uh, show notes or links that we talked about today in the podcast. So take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next time. If you enjoy The Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com, that's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com, to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.